This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, humans, where to begin? Myth may be the place. Before we invented books, then movies, then the internet, to wield influence and entertain ourselves, we created myths. In many of these stories, there be monsters. Author Jess Zimmerman loved Greek myths as a child. As an adult, she was drawn to unpack a question, personally and culturally. What was up with the female monsters? The result is her new book of essays, Women and Other Monsters, Building a New Mythology. The essays blend memoir and critique to explore the messages women have absorbed over centuries of mythic tropes. The heroes were mostly men. Many of the monsters they fought were female, among them Medusa, Scylla, the Sirens, and the Harpies. The story arcs demonstrated likely outcomes for monstrous women who display qualities like cunning and rage, grow too ambitious, are beautiful or not, are sexual or not, or pursue the horror, their own agency. These stories, mostly written by men when it came time to write, weren't known for their happy endings for the female protagonists. Zimmerman's work seeks to subvert that narrative, and she has some serious fans. Here's a snippet of the torrent of praise. Quote, Every one of these essays is muscular and dangerous, with a mouthful of teeth. Women and other monsters is sure to become a feminist classic. Carmen Maria Machado. Quote, Jess Zimmerman's writing is always intimate and fierce, piercing and warm. I loved women and other monsters. I ate it up, and it felt a little like it devoured me right back. Sachi Cole. Quote, We are so long overdue for new mythologies about women and power. Jess's book is a pitch-perfect antidote to the sexist hash of our traditional stories. Soraya Shamali. Jess Zimmerman is the editor-in-chief of Electric Literature, a nonprofit digital publisher with the mission to make literature more exciting, relevant, and inclusive. She was joined in this conversation by Igioma Luo, the author of So You Want to Talk About Race, and her latest, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented their discussion 
on April 16th. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Jess, hi! <laughs> we, we haven't, I don't think, ever, and we've known each other for um, probably seven years, mm-hmm. six or seven years. And yeah, then- it, it, it's probably at least seven years because I think, no, it, it has to be like eight because my seven-year anniversary of quitting my full-time job Yes. In order to write full time just passed. And yeah. I had been working with you before then. Yeah. So on that, by the way. Little did they know. I mean, I, I honestly, I think about it sometimes. I'm like, remember when Joma just had like, just a, just a regular job and they had no idea who was working for them. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't get to that, that job. Like I was marketing for Chevrolet. So I was literally like in the most white male of white male environments. Yeah. I used to say like, if you took Mad Men and took out anything fancy or attractive, <laughs> what you had left working at a car dealership. That's like basically the life that I, I lived and, and I was starting my fledgling career. But with you, you were one of the first editors to really... Um, reach out to me in a way that wasn't like exo Jane. <laughs> like that was very like um, I don't know. You just really helped me. You took me under your wing. You you invested so much time and energy into making me a better writer. So I really hope that like people who a get this book because trust me, if it's it comes from the mind and the work of someone who is extremely talented. Um, has a lot of experience and knows what she's talking about, but also is just a really generous person. Um, and and I'm so I'm so excited to get to do this. Like it was an immediate yes. Like when you asked me, I mean, granted, once I checked my DMs because you know how horrible it is, how I am at that. But once I got to it and I was like, yes, I, I want to do this thing. Um, I'm so excited and so honored to even get to talk to you about this. And, and this is so beautiful. And I must say. The moment I, like, even today, I pulled the book off the shelf again. My partner immediately grabbed it from me because he's a big spec thick nerd and was like, what? And was like, he was like, okay, but can I, can I have it <laughs> when you're done? Because <laughs> I want to go through this. It's such a, a fascinating book. And so I would love first for you to just, in your own words, do a, a little quick summary of like, what do you feel like? this book accomplishes or, you know, a little bit about it, a little, a little teaser for people who yeah. haven't read it. I mean, I, I worry sometimes that people do think that it's going to be speculative fiction or that it's going to be, mm-hmm. I have seen people being like, Oh, I'm going to put this on my TBR for fiction. Like, Oh no, <laughs> uh, it's fine. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, like low key indoctrinate you into feminism. And, <laughs> um, but basically like it is mostly, a feminist book like it is it is mostly like kind of a work of you know sort of feminist analysis and like argument and stuff like that but it, it but it's using these stories of female monsters from antiquity from, from Greek and Roman mythology um because those are sort of the stories that have gotten really baked into our culture um in this sort of very autophagous way where where kind of those are the stories that the next group of stories were based on and then the next group of stories were based on that. Um, this is all, you know, sort of within, you know, kind of Western culture. Sorry, Western is not in quotes, culture is in quotes, kind of our idea of like what is what is culturally valuable. 
has been like really rooted on these stories. And so, like I say in there somewhere, these are the bed- bedtime stories that patriarchy tells itself um, because these are just kind of stories that have gotten really baked into the part of our culture that has worked very hard to crowd out every other culture and that has worked very hard to sort of um, crown itself as what it means to be literary, what it means to be artistic, what it means to be valuable. Um, And so I wanted to sort of take apart those stories, first of all, to just show the ways that they do kind of crawl through all of our, you know, subconscious in a way. Um, They're really, really sort of baked in. Um, And then also to show kind of how we can subvert them. And so a lot of these stories, what they're doing is they're acting as I don't, I don't even want to say cautionary tales because that suggests that, you know, that, that the people who are being cautioned are, are the point, right? And so they're not, they're not structured as kind of, I'm going to be a cautionary tale to women to tell them, you know, take a step back, keep yourself small, you know, don't do things that will, that will over, you know, overflow your boundaries, because it's not, they're not even thinking about women, right? It's just that these are the ways the kind of the hero myths are set up so that the female characters are the ones who become monstrous because they're having these various traits. And so I wanted to kind of, first of all, put those monsters at the center, push the heroes to the side and then say, okay, well, what happens if we kind of re, um, reimagine those stories and retell those stories. Um, and then, you know, sort of on top of that, I'm also kind of bringing in personal anecdote. I'm bringing in sort of um, current events sometimes. Occasionally I bring in just like a thing that I happen to be obsessed with. So like, you know, like the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which is just a guy's, you know, the index of a guy's book where he says what it feels like to be stung by a bunch of different kinds of bugs. I happen to really like that. So I used it as a metaphor. <laughs> um, but but the but the basic sort of project is to take apart these myths that that are influencing people. I think in a way, in a to a degree that that we don't even necessarily always re, um, recognize. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's it's vital. And we were talking about this earlier. Um, you know, for me, I think a lot of times, you know, I, when I was talking to Nora Jemison, like a couple years ago. And we were talking about the importance of imagination. We were just talking about this before we started and talking about how, you know, we have to, and and this is actually something my partner also has said as well, you know, like what he has said in in the context of races, if we don't imagine ourselves in the future, we'll get written out of that as well. Mm -hmm. And what it means to imagine something new, but I think that also requires a deep dive into how we've been conditioned um, by other people's imaginations and uh, by the imagination of the patriarchy and white supremacy. And what is interesting that I noticed in here that was that was really interesting to me, um, you know, I had just finished, you know, I just wrote Mediocre. And, and we have a chapter talking about um, this magazine that was called True Story Magazine that was aimed at women um, because women were the primary readers in the um, early 1900s, late 1800s in America. And it was aimed at these morality tales to warn women, but they were written to women to warn them off of certain behavior. So usually young women going off and seeking adventure and ending up raped, killed, barren, homeless, you know, um, to be like, don't do that. 
But what was interesting that I I had realized that, you know, I guess fully hadn't been the connection until looking in, in your book was talking about all of these stories that don't even have the generosity of assuming agency of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these, you're, like you said, these aren't morality tales for women because that would assume that women are making these choices, right? These, these often serve as conditioning for men for what to expect of women and to be warned about women. But it doesn't actually assume that a woman would choose or get to choose anyway. And, and I think that that's so interesting to see how many, the way in which we construct our idea of heroes and danger has been set by this space that really starts from, from this idea that women won't have agency in the story no matter what. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, and that, that positions women as um, really the feats that the hero is supposed to overcome. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are the two sort of the two things, and this is also, you know, like this shows up in Joseph Campbell, right? That there are kind of two two things that a woman can be, and one of those is an obstacle, and one of them is a prize. Um, and there's not really room. I was actually just I was just <laughs> rereading um, Helena Fitzgerald's essay that I published on Electric Literature, which is about how Magic Mike XXL uh, like both kind of uh, follows and then subverts the hero's journey because it allows women to, to not be those things, um, which I highly recommend. But, uh, but so, so, so those are, you know, these are the stories that we're saying are where, like, like you say, like it's, and it's not even just that women don't have the agency in the story. It's that it's assumed that they're not the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, like why would women be, you know, hearing a story or reading, (laughs) reading an epic poem, um, and where that becomes, especially dangerous is when they are these stories that have, that have really like anointed themselves as the classic stories, which are classic and which are also classy and are what it means to be educated. Um, And then every kind of next iteration of stories is looking back to those for the idea of kind of what, you know, what has been imagined so far and therefore what is it possible for me to imagine? Because like you say, like the, when you constrain sort of the idea of what's imaginable, then you you genuinely constrain what people can can conceive of in the future. And so essentially like these stories from the deep past are really like passing themselves kind of hand over hand and continuing to constrain what we think about in the future, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it absolutely is. You know, it's it's interesting to me too because I've been wondering about the role of nerdery. In, in subversive writing um, and, and how, how, how much it seems to really coincide when it comes to really pulling apart our culture and the people who, you know, I think often from these specialized spaces of just, like th- these are really important concepts yeah. for how we think of who people are and think of gender roles in our country. But it, it's also really, really nerdy, like so nerdy. <laughs> so many times, like I, the nerdy levels on here um, reminds me too of like like Daniel Mallory, right? Where, uh, Daniel Orbert, where you're like um, Daniel, sorry, Lavery. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me, Lavery. Um, where you're like, oh, oh, you just you just did this all the time. Like, <laughs> this this is a lifelong thing. But I, I find that some of the most um, 
many of a, a lot of the subversive writing that we see that's pulling apart culture comes from this space of deep nerdery that people often often ignore like these segments of culture but then they come through with this analysis and i and i see this a lot like in black nerdery as well really doing a lot of work to subvert the ways in which we talk about race um in you know fiction spec fiction music you know um what what do you think what role like nerdery plays like because i i mean even in when you talk about your life like it's very clear that these are things that you've thought about and been obsessed with since you were a small child like what do you think what role do you think nerdery plays in this whole thing well that's that's a really really interesting question it's not something i'd, I'd thought about but i was actually just reading something about star wars nerds and the way that they kind of use and these were specifically like white male ones, or at least ones who were like um, engaging with Star Wars in a in a sort of white male inflected way. Um, the way that they kind of use memorizing things as a replacement for analyzing or appreciating or considering them. And I feel like those are kind of the two ways, the two modes that you can use to engage with something that you love very deeply. Like you can either like really kind of cast it in amber and just kind of gaze upon it like a monolith, right? And that does tend to be a more sort of male-inflected way or, or you know, like white male-inflected way or just kind of, you know, curiarchical, right? Um, or you can take it apart, right? You can like love it so much that you eat it, basically, to, to put that, uh, was that Maurice Sendak that was going around? Uh, that he like, he drew a little picture for a little kid and the kid's mother wrote back and said, oh, he loved your drawing so much that he ate it. Um, <laughs> So, so those are sort of the two things that you can do, right? You can put it on a pedestal or you can be like, I love this so much that I'm going to take this apart. And especially when you're coming at it from, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a black nerd taking this apart or I'm a, you know, a woman taking this apart or whatever. Um, specifically, like I'm going to take this apart and find a place in it for me because I'm not there right now. Um, and so it kind of requires sort of taking the story apart figuring out how it goes back together and how it can go back together in a different way that has more room in it, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, so it's funny, like you, you say, how does nerdery play into this? And I think of nerd of like nerd culture. Yeah. It's often this very ossified mm -hmm. idea where, where you're just venerating things rather than analyzing them, but you're totally right that, that, you know, rewriting things is also an extremely nerdy pursuit <laughs> um, and it's just kind of like the flip side of that instinct to you know one of one kind of person wants to preserve it and one kind of person wants to figure out what makes it tick basically yeah you know what that reminded me as you were talking of is like when you think of religion and I think often we can we can compare a lot of these spaces to religion right um whether it's sci-fi nerdery mythology tech um and I think oftentimes I think of it as the difference between becoming an evangelical or a theologian right where like you decide, I love this thing and I'm going to study it and see what its history is and see where it's going and what it could be. Or I love this thing and I'm going to make sure it never changes and that everyone adheres to it the way that it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's interesting because of course the powers that be, what you see highlighted in all of these, in religion, in nerd sections is the evangelicals, right? Saying, no, it's been like this. It will always be like this. Um, forgetting, of course, that all of these things stem from creation of some sort, right? And, and, and how important that is. And so I just, it's been interesting for me. Um, you, you, you start off with Medusa, which I think is 
amazing. And you reference the uh, now infamous sculpture of <laughs> Medusa, which I, I, I still just love all of the memes that went around and that were saying, you know, give her snake pubes, you, you cowards, you know, um, for those who haven't seen this sculpture, um, you want to tell people a little bit about it and, yeah, it was it was going so it, it it doesn't like hail from the beginning of the Me Too movement. It was it was a pre-existing sculpture that I think people like found and kind of um, broadcast on Twitter around when that was all starting to go down. And it it's Medusa with the head of Perseus. So it essentially inverts the famous statue of Perseus with the head of Medusa. Um, Perseus does, I believe, get pubes in the original statue, but but this so this is like a very very um, sort of conventionally attractive. Um, I mean, she's white because she's like the whole statue is white. You know, she's plaster or marble or something like that. But she also like, I think is is a very sort of very conventionally attractive in a very like European fitness model kind of way. Um, but she has the snake hair and she's holding up, you know, a man's head in the way that that the the Perseus, who I think is on the cover of like every edition of Edith Hamilton is mm-hmm. holding up Medusa's head. Um, and so, you know, that's one, it's one of those, like, real, like, exit through the gift shop-ass sculptures where it's like, ooh, <laughs> like, <laughs> turn it around and now it's deep. Um, but, of course, you know, it doesn't really, it doesn't question the idea that, like, Medusa would be, or, or that, it, not even Medusa, it's, it doesn't question the idea that, like, a fitting subject for art would be this, like, extremely conventionally attractive body, Um he does not like again have the courage to give her snake pubes or even people pubes. Like she just has this like completely blank crotch, like <laughs> um, so there are a lot of ways in which it's like like really kind of patting itself on the back for being a very subversive sculpture. It is made by a man, mm-hmm. as if I needed to tell you that. Like <laughs> it's obviously made by a man. Um, so it was an interesting, it was an interesting example both of kind of what what it does and doesn't mean to subvert these stories and to like really kind of think through the the lessons that they're imparting. Um, and also at the same time, it was it was an interesting sort of way into thinking about what has happened to Medusa over, you know, coming from antiquity into kind of the way that she shows up in more recent art where she, like her face has become more and more sort of conventionally beautiful according to the conventions of, whatever time she's being depicted in. Um, And she used to be this like genuinely hideous figure with like big tusks. She had a beard sometimes. Um, And so that's been, there was a great little um, exhibit at the Met um, that happened to be like just basically as I was starting to write this. So it's the the intro to the book um, that essentially was looking at all of these female monsters and the way that all of them have gone from being pretty monstrous in the way that they're depicted to being like very conventional, but then, oh, they've got, you know, bird feet. Oh, they've got snake hair. Um, And that essentially kind of the, the message that you're getting through this transformation is monsters look like women. Women can be monsters. You don't know until you're like looking at exactly the right part or until you're looking, you know, below the waist or until you're, you know, until she takes her hat off. Um, So, so this Medusa was like very much an example of that. Like if she had just like kind of put on a babushka, like (laughs) (laughs) 
you would have been like, oh, you're, you're just a, you're just a standard hottie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that it's really interesting to look at the way in which um, I, do you think this is something, I feel like this is more U.S. specific than just about anywhere else. Like I think that other cultures and even, you know, European cultures have this tendency over the years to absolutely beautify any women that are kind of allowed to be seen anywhere. But I noticed that the way in which in the U.S., like you literally can't be seen as interesting. Like we don't even have in our films, like our character actors who are women are very rarely allowed to even be ugly, like at all. Um, you can be pretty and gain, gain 20 pounds and then play your ugly character. And that's about it, you know, but you can't actually be. And I wonder, you know, and when they are, it's usually some twist, you know, where you find out they're not nearly as ugly or something happened to explain the ugliness. <laughs> um, the, the thing where, like, you know, you take off the glasses and you take down the pencil <laughs> that's in the hair and then all of a sudden you're ready for prom. You know? Right. Or they were beautiful, but something happened to them and now they're not beautiful. <laughs> but, you know, somewhere deep inside, there's there's the beautiful woman. Uh, that was that was there before, and it's 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 amazing to me because I do think like the U.S. is specifically stuck in this space where um, women are constantly used as like these foils for men, these dangers for men to encounter, and beauty seems to be it. Like the danger, and this is what's been fascinating for me too: the danger that men seem to encounter in American pop culture is never the brains of a woman. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, like there are, you know, and some of these myths are kind of the the sort of story that is getting across is like, don't don't know too much. Like, don't don't know too many secrets. Mm-hmm. Um, so like part of the reason I think that that in sort of our modern mythology, which is pop culture, that you're not seeing men brought down by a woman's brains or that like we're not supposed to consider that as a possibility. Like. <laughs> A women with with dangerous brains. I don't know. Um, yeah. Someone just commented, Steve Buscemi wouldn't be successful as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But I but I also think that you're right that like I don't even know that you know Phoebe Waller Bridge, who is incredibly beautiful. I don't know that she would be successful starting in you know in American um, yes. TV because like she is slightly unusual looking. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, and, and I think it's gotten in many ways, kind of more entrenched. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you talked about in here, it was even in the introduction, you know, talking about what it means to warn about women that exist out of bounds, that they're monsters because they exist out of these bounds that the patriarchy places on women. But what you're actually talking about is freedom. And I think about a lot about, especially as someone who, who, you know, as like someone with uh, who's fat, who's black, all these things, thinks about a lot, you know, about the ways in which to naturally exist outside of bounds in many ways, while also existing within in in, in others. Um, but what it means in, in freeing yourself from that often means recognizing and deciding to stay out of these bounds and to stop trying to get back within them and how difficult that can be. Uh, yeah. what, what do you think, like, you know, if there was something inspiring in 
these monsters? And I think there is in many ways, you know, what are you kind of hoping maybe like if a young woman is reading this and questioning the ways in which she exists out of bounds um, and often would have maybe looked at these stories and just seen an affirmation that she shouldn't exist. What are you hoping that maybe she sees instead? Yeah. I mean, I think that in some ways it'll be easiest to feel strongly about the ones that where you already feel out of bounds. Like sometimes being like feeling like you're almost there can be the hardest place to be. I mean, and especially, and I, you know, I write about this a little in the Medusa one with respect to beauty. Like if you're, if you're getting pretty close to the kind of thin, white, young, very feminine beauty ideal, it's really hard to not be like, oh, I just have to, you know, lose that last 10 pounds. Oh, I just have to, you know, deal with this like weird flubbery bit or whatever. Um, so so I, I I would not be surprised if the monsters that, that people kind of resonate with are the ones that they already have, have sort of relegated themselves to monstrousness in a sense. And they, and they do already feel like, oh, this is a grotesque trait. And this is a trait that like makes me, less of a person because we really do. I mean, that is really the way that, that we often feel about these traits is that they make us because they make us less acceptable within these like very specific kind of boundaries set by the patriarchy that they in a way make us less of a person. Um, And so I think that it might be easier to kind of make that leap into, Oh, well being less of a person means being more of a monster and these monsters are actually extremely powerful. You know, they are monsters. Like they are like out here eating people and <laughs> you know, making sailors jump to their deaths. And um, so, so I do think, I think that there's inherently a power in these stories that we, we see and I think it resonates with us. And that's why we get images like that, well, maybe not Medusa with the head of Perseus because that was a man, but like we get, you know, there have been, there's decades of, of history of people sort of reclaiming the idea of Medusa, reclaiming the idea of harpies, you know, having a big like Medusa patch on their, you know, denim jacket and whatever. Um, and the reason I think that we resonate with them in, the, in that way is that the power is obvious, mm-hmm. but at the same time, we're told that the power is something that we're supposed to kind of step away from that we're supposed to keep at arm's length. Um, and so I think what I'm hoping is that people make the connection between this is the thing that makes me feel less than, but this is also like, this is a thing that I share with these creatures who are in many ways more than, you know, that they're, they're frightening and they're powerful and they're, you know, um, and, and a lot of them, you know, we, we talked about, um, and this is something that you deal with in mediocre a lot too, like kind of the idea of, the way that hero stories get made and the way that kind of the idea of the hero gets, um, gets kind of created in, um, in opposition to the people that the hero has to, you know, be better than. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so like these monsters, the role that they're fulfilling is often the thing that the hero has to face and, and that he's supposed to best. Many of them don't, he doesn't best them. You know, and that's something that we kind of don't think about because it's not if you're if you're reading it with the thought that the hero is the person that you're supposed to focus on and relate to, um, you know, he gets to go on and do, you know, and finish his quest and do whatever the next thing is. And you don't really think about the fact that like, oh, 
like Odysseus never conquered Scylla. He never conquered Charybdis. You know, Charybdis is the whirlpool almost swallowed him. Um, the, you know, the harpies are blade proof. They never get bested by the Argonauts. Um, the Sphinx actually destroys herself. Um, you know, Odysseus answers your question, but he doesn't actually, or, um, not Odysseus, uh, Oedipus answers your question, but he doesn't, he doesn't like fight her. Um, so that I think is really interesting is that a lot of them are allowed in this way to maintain their power because like even the story like can't figure out a way to take it from them. Mm -hmm. So it's still kind of there for us, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, that's really amazing. And I think, you know, I think it was interesting when you were talking about being a young teen and the way in which we try to like act like we are living in the things that we are insecure about and being like, I know it, but you're not really fully there because also it takes a lot of confidence and a feeling of power to actually say, no, I'm fully embodying this space. And I think that that's something that, you know, for me struck me because I, especially also because I'm parenting teens right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm very aware with like the self facing (laughs) space that teens seem to be required to live in um, and be like, no, what would it be like to actually to own that? And I I think that we pass through that self facing space but we actually, very few of us pass into that full ownership. We just kind of move into a space where we stop, try to act like we're not as concerned anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like in a lot of ways, this is the role that I play in the book, you know, because it's, it does have a lot of personal stuff. Um, not every essay, but, but, you know, some of them are very personal. Um, and, and some people have sort of asked me like, oh, how do you feel like, you're putting memoir in here. And I'm like, this is not memoir. Like this is like, I am in here as essentially Virgil. Like mm-hmm. I'm kind of guiding you through this story. And I'm, and these are like illustrations, you know, illustrative anecdotes. Um, and I think that, that in a lot of ways, the role that, that I can perform in the book is as someone who like, hasn't done this perfectly and is kind of like working through how truly hard it is because, um, because it is like, it's, 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 it's an act of great bravery to like really be able to embrace the things that you've been told your entire life are not acceptable. Um, and I think most people who do achieve it don't achieve it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think it would not be super helpful for me to kind of be like, Oh, you should like, you should reclaim monstrosity. I'm smart. Um, you know, and then like, what are you supposed to then do with that? Mm-hmm. You know, um, as opposed to kind of recognizing like these are things that um, that for that you know that I personally have done imperfectly um, or in some cases barely at all um, and just to be willing to sort of say that and be like this is hard you know a lot of these it sounds great. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation between Jess Zimmerman and Ijeoma Luo on April 16th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you are there, you can subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon. Looking through these mythologies, were, were there some that you were surprised at the relationship maybe you had with them or the way you looked at it after writing it from this standpoint versus maybe when you had first read them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that uh, that there were a few of them that like I 
um, sirens is a good example. Like I knew, um, so I have to remember to like back up and, and tell people what, what monsters are just in case, like, you know, if people haven't read the book and were not a mythology obsessive, like I was. So, so the sirens are the ones who are, um, birds with woman heads or woman, women with bird bodies. They sing very, very beautifully. And they sing in fact, so beautifully that, um, that sailors who are on their, pardon me, are on their ships, if they can hear the voice of the siren, they will jump into the water and try to swim to them and, and will drown. Um, and so I knew from the start that I wanted that to be about the idea of seductiveness, which is different from beauty, um, which is sort of uh, the sort of way that that men tend to make promises to themselves about women and what they will do with their bodies. Um, or, you know, women, obviously, and, and I get into this in the book, but when I say women, this is that's a very, very broad term of just sort of anybody who has had femininity projected on them at any time in their lives. So that's, that's a larger group than, than people who, who actually are women. Um, but, but so I knew that I wanted to write about seductiveness. It's not something I actually have a lot of experience with. Like, <laughs> and so, so I was like, well, I don't like, I don't feel like a very seductive person. So like, I'm not going to write about sort of my, my experience as the target of this. Um, and so I wound up writing instead about a, an image that like I understood was meant to be seductive to men, but that I had also found seductive, which is the um, Aerosmith video for crazy. Um, and so that was, that was a hard one to sort of find a way into, because if there was a trait that I wanted to highlight that I was like, this is not something that I've really like worked through yet. Um, it's, it's a little hard to sort of find a way to, illuminated. I don't know that. Well, no, I, I mean, I feel like I, I feel like I, I achieved a better understanding of kind of how the concept of what of seductiveness, which is something that, you know, is very, is really imposed on us in a way. Um, I think I developed a better understanding of kind of how I think that operates in society. Um, I don't know that I, developed a better understanding of how it operates for me personally. Um, but, you know, but, but like we were saying, like, it's tricky, you know, a lot of these are, are hard to sort of immediately apply to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever watch, I don't know if this reminds me, did you ever watch the show Misfits? Yeah. Like, you know, all these people have these really cool powers and then the, the most, conventionally attractive woman, a black woman was given the worst power ever, which was men, once they touched her <laughs> would go like wild and couldn't stop trying to have sex with her. And I was thinking like, wow, okay. A dude wrote that had to, there's no way like anyone would be like, yeah, that's a power. That's not a, that's not a power in any way, but it reminds oh. me of these stories of like <laughs> sirens as well, because someone had, someone had put a post out the other day saying, you know, what if sirens are just chilling out, singing a song and dudes just won't leave them alone. And they're just yeah. bemusedly like, what are you doing? <laughs> Cause they're yeah, dying. Not, yeah. And I did, I did sort of like, I tried to kind of like put the sirens at the center of the story in that chapter. And I said, like, if, if you're a siren, then probably the story is just like you're singing and every so often there's a splash. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
like the idea that they're trying to like do something to you is absolutely something that's projected on them. And it's something that's, you know, that's projected on all of us who are, who are women or who are seen as women or who are seen as feminized. Like it, most of us at some time or another, like either, either we have that projected on us or we see that projected on other people who, who are similar to us. Um, I actually, now I, I rewatched Misfits uh, last year, actually just as like a pandemic binge watch. And now I wish that I'd, that I'd put that in there because it is, it is such a shit power. It's so it is so horrific. It's so horrific. <laughs> I mean, a lot of their powers are bad, but that one is that one is like obviously this is like just trash. Yeah, um, it just serves no purpose. That could let's, like let's get rid of it. Well, I don't yeah. want to do any spoilers, but geez. yeah, no. But I mean, I do. Yeah, they, I'm glad they do eventually realize. Like, wait, maybe it's like someone rethought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if they're supposed to be saving the world, how is this going to play? Well, any- she never, she never it- uses it as <laughs> I think it only makes trouble, which, <laughs> you know, and, and, and in a lot of ways, like, I think that's true of the idea of seductiveness too. like one of the things that I kind of get into in the chapter is the way that like, um, you know, like guys on Reddit are like, oh, makeup is just makeup is fake. And I can't remember if that was in, in Sirens or Medusa, but like, oh, I gotta take women swimming on the first date so their makeup comes up. You know, like they think that like some kind of um nefarious shit is happening, like a plan. And like many of these things are just kind of ways that people are or you know, just existing in the world. Um, uh, you know, and I'm honestly, to be a little crude here, no matter how appalling it might be to see a woman without how many, however many layers of makeup she's wearing, nothing is more appalling than like seeing some dude's underwear after you've had sex with him. Like that's the ultimate reveal right there that guys should be more concerned about. Like that's the big lie because they look like that everything is clean and fresh. And then you're like, oh, you tricked me. Yeah. I would have much rather encountered some spanks, ma'am. Exactly. Right. I would have much rather spanks. <laughs> she's a little bit of makeup, something like that. Found out your hair isn't naturally straight. Fine. You know. Totally. Finding out you know how to wipe your ass. That's not something that I was sold here, sir. But we don't but we don't like think of that as, oh, this is a nefarious kind <laughs> of like oh, men are putting this, putting one over on people because on the outside, their clothes are clean, but on the inside, their clothes are not clean. Like, that's just not kind of a a mode that we use to think about them, so. Well, and I think they romanticize that about men as well, right? So medically, the romanticized part of men is you get to find out they're much deeper than they seem and more complicated than they seem, and there's so much more to them. Whereas that's always seen as a danger in women. Like the danger is you're going to find out. And I think in mythology, we see this as well, right? The danger is you're going to find out that she's not as simple <laughs> as she's saying. The goal is it's going to be just simple. You know? And this is what happens with the sort of increasingly human looking faces. And, you know, and this is something that, that happens kind of, you know, I, I focused on, um, on the Greek and Roman mostly Greek myths for, for sort of the reasons that, that I got into earlier, but like you, you do see this particular thing across cultures, which is the idea of kind of a woman who looks very beautiful from the front, but then, you know, from, you know, in the back, she's a hollow tree or she's only got one leg or she, you know, just all of these things that like, Oh, you look a little closer, Mm -hmm. uh, but you thought she was fine. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's really sort of a, a consistent theme for for kind of female coded monsters. Yeah. It makes me wonder too, like how many of these were written by like sad, lonely guys who tried to free once, right? We're like, oh come on, I thought that was a girl. I really did. <laughs> Whatever you saw there tricked me. This tree, it's so shapely. Um, yeah. I'm going to try to work in some of the questions here. By the way, just put the questions in the chat or the Q&A if you have them. But we have one here from Vivian saying, the love of Greek myths often begins in elementary school. Are there any monsters in particular that are important to teach to our very young girls, Medusa or the Furies? Or that's Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think, that, I think that in a lot of ways, you know, one thing that I've ended up discussing with other people who were who like really cut their teeth on Dolaire's book of Greek myths which is which is what I kind of cut my teeth on in elementary school um is that a lot of these stories were kind of deeply sanitized for an audience of children and so I think the ways that you would introduce these monsters to to children would be I'm not I'm not actually sure how you would do it um, in a way that would kind of subvert the story um, rather than just kind of passing it on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it's probably less, um, less a matter of kind of which ones are important for kids to know about and more a matter of sort of how they're introduced to kids. Um, and I think that you know, all of these, you know, the stories are good stories also. The stories are sort of adventurous stories. Um, and I think that's why kids like them so much. But it is never the monsters who get to have the adventures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think there's no reason kind of not to tell the adventure stories with the heroes to children. But like, it's if it's possible to sort of take a moment and say you know, okay, well, they're, they're riding past the sirens and the sirens song is very beautiful, but the sirens maybe <laughs> have no idea what's going on um, or something like that. Um, I, I obviously like, I'm not uh, an expert on how to, <laughs> how to tell stories to children, but, um, but yeah, so I think that, um, I think that, I think that, uh, like any of them could be a good story um, for kids, but I think that it's it's worth sort of taking a moment to sort of question the idea of them as as just an obstacle or just a thing that moves the story along. Yeah, you know, um, I I think it's also great to look at you know to let girls know they have ownership over stories, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that's something often when we are telling stories, especially things considered classics, right? We are teaching the story as yeah. if it's canon. And instead you can also like have people like fill in and, and say, you know, what can it mean? Uh, Sonora Jaw was talking about in um, How to Raise a Feminist Son that, um, you know, about how uh, being Indian, um, she took a lot of the myths in Indian culture and took the ones she liked and discarded parts of it that she didn't like. And if there was a part of the story that didn't fit her life, that didn't seem interesting, she would come up with a different explanation for why it ended the way it did or come up with a different ending for it or kind of recognizing that it, it was her culture because she was engaging with it. And therefore she could decide it ended differently. And I think that that's something that's, you know, I think that's something that 
young men are taught to do all of the time. They're always taught to put themselves in these stories and say, what would you do? Right. Um, but because often women aren't written as full characters into these story or they're written as monsters, uh, a lot of times people shy away from the thought of saying, Hey, if you were this monster, what would you do? And what yeah. would your story be? You know, I think that could be really powerful. Absolutely legitimate to do that. And I think she could really go for it actually, just based on sort of my nieces. I do my 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 mom did a similar thing, which is that uh I had a book that I really loved that um the whole like the whole story is essentially about the value of like teamwork and trying hard. And then at the end, the sister who you know works hard and tries hard gets snapped up by a handsome prince, and then they go and live in the castle. It's the like last page. Prince has not been involved in any other way in the story. And so my mom just didn't read me that story or that page. And I didn't find out that it existed until I was an adult. And I got it for my nieces. who just put a big post-it over the last page. It was like, the end. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you absolutely get to do that. And I think that, I think that sort of recognizing that these monsters um, are, are in there and can be, you know, can be sort of brought into the center is a good reminder that like there are um there are other characters to see yourself in than you know the princess who gets married at the end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. stories but still yeah yeah absolutely uh, i have a question here from rick uh says the book focuses on myth have you read and tried to parse in whatever way fairy and folk tales do uh, what stories in that realm that you've encountered generally favored men or put women in negative light as well? Um, so that's something that that there's, I think, an even deeper history of. I do think that we've had a recent history and then there, and also a previous history of, of kind of rethinking myth. Um, fairy tales, I think, maybe starting with Angela Carter, but but maybe she was part of something that was sort of already happening is like those have been we've been, I think, subverting those for, for a longer time. Like that to me feels like it's very robust. Um, and so the answer is like, yeah, I've, I've read things that other, you know, truly brilliant writers have done kind of subverting the fairy tale. And there's a lot of those still around. Like it's a, it's a very, very, very rich vein um, to look at fairy tales and kind of rethink them with, you know, different morals, different, um, different focuses, different, you know, uh, different sort of cultural backgrounds for the characters. Um, and we've like, I can't think of any right now because of course, as soon as you start uh, trying to list books, <laughs> they all go out of your head. But we've done, we've done a few different lists on Electric Lit that are like, oh, fairy tales that have been rethought to be like darker and sexier or, you know, more feminist. Um, and so that's something that that like a lot of people are doing an amazing job with. Um, and so, yeah, like I've thought about it, but it's not something it's not something that I feel like I have to kind of jump in. Um, it's more something that I like to read. Yeah, I feel like that's also a space that like early 2000s vlogging used to spend a lot of time in. <laughs> You know, and and I think that there were a lot of great books that kind of lived in this like humor nerdery realm um, mm-hmm. that did a lot of work trying to subvert these. Some of them very tongue in cheek. Some of them were much more serious. Mm-hmm. What's interesting here, though, too, is he says folk tales as well. And oftentimes, I think like when we look at myth 
versus folktale, what we often get um, is a, it often depends on where this legend falls as far as race and gender and, and who it's suited to. And so I find often, while you absolutely find a fair amount of sexism in folktales, you find a lot more folktale aimed at women. Um, and we recognize folktales as stories told in cultures that don't have any kind of like Greco-Roman history in them as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that may be why folk and fairy tales became sort of a subject for kind of inversion and subversion earlier, because they, they weren't sort of building themselves up as these sort of pillars of culture. They were something that felt more intimate, more accessible, and therefore kind of more reworkable. Mm-hmm. You know, what's funny that kind of reminds me of too, like looking at, you know, the way in which we talk about sculpture, right. And talk about these classic kind of Greek styled um, sculptures is, you know, when they recently, and I'm, sure, I'm sure you probably read this article as well. They recently like did some like scanning of old Greek sculptures and found out that they were all in color. They were all in really vivid, bright color. And the whiteness has kind of been an imagined thing of white supremacy to say that, you know, these were all, these were people with brown skin often and wearing like, well, honestly, when, when I saw some of them like recreated because they used like sequencing and stuff to like find out like the actual like pigments that were used goofy goofy ass looking outfits that some of these sculptures <laughs> that look very you know but it, it cracks me up because and I think like when we talk about this and the way we look at this and even the way in which we call things now mythology I think a lot of it we forget like this probably looked a lot goofier and was a lot less of a you know this people didn't know they were building pillars of culture at the time and didn't get that like white patriarchy was going to be like, yeah. hey, let's, let's make this an idea. Let's make this story about this lady with with uh, snakes coming out of her head. Um, and and deal how we literally bone white. I mean, and this is this is true of of, of a lot of the um, the monsters and the people in these myths too. Is that they were not like the lily white of sculptures, right? Like a lot of this is happening around the Mediterranean. Um, the Sphinx is you know, very explicitly from North Africa. Um, but she's not, you know, usually in paintings, you know, um, the, the sort of European paintings of Oedipus and the Sphinx, she's, she's much paler generally. Um, even though, you know, we know that the idea of the Sphinx, like, is that there's a, that there's a sort of a conceptual bridge from the Greek Sphinx to the Egyptian Sphinx. And she is explicitly, it's not, it's not really super racialized in the way the story is told, but it's very kind of xenophobic. Like, mm-hmm. oh, she came from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so even, even these monsters are not, not as white as we imagine. I think probably the heroes aren't either, but it's just become like very, very marble white in our minds. <laughs> and also in like the way that we've been depicting them since, you know, the Renaissance, if not earlier. Mm-hmm. Great. And the next question we have comes from Nicole, and she says, I admire both of you as writers. Can you speak a little about your writing presence? Writing presence? Process. Process. Um, Oh, man. I mean, mine's garbage. I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) 
it really is true. You know, I was just saying, I was saying this to you beforehand, because we were talking about like people who write, you know, two books in a year or write, you know, two books immediately after each other um, or sell another book right after their book comes out. Um, and, you know, and I, it is partly a factor of, of having a day job, but like I, I wrote this book in like 200 word chunks. Like that was my, that was my goal per day. Um, and often I wrote more than 200 words, but often I also did not write more than 200 words. So like, it's not, so I guess like in terms of sort of, you know, learning something from that writing process or like using that writing process as any kind of model, the model is probably nothing is really too, like, I've, I mean, I've heard people say like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm only writing, my, my goal is only 500 words a day. And I'm like, listen, like I wrote a whole book <laughs> in these tiny little chunks. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's useful, I think, to under promise and over deliver to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So, but yeah, like a lot of my, like I have terrible sleep hygiene. So like if I, like the most, the best work that I got done on this book was in a couple of weeks when I was off work either because it was, it was like the end of the year break or um, we did a um, electric lit um, taught a writing residency in Banff um, in the summer of 2019. And I basically took one, one of those weeks I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm going to meet with students the second week, the first week I'm just going to write and I'm not actually going to be on the clock. Um, And those were the times that I was like, like all the food in Banff, like closed at like the place that I could get a tuna fish sandwich closed at nine. So I would like go and buy a tuna and then I would eat it at like 2 AM in my little office, like a little mouse. Um, But so these are the times that I could like stay up till 3 AM or just be whatever kind of, garbage person I needed to be to get to get some work done so yeah absolutely I think like my process doesn't exist necessarily like I have ideals but I would say nothing has ruined like my sleep hygiene more than being a writer especially as a mom like there is no um you do all your business during the day do all that stuff and then it's like oh the kids are asleep now I'm going to start writing Uh, and I also have really severe ADD which is why I think being an essayist works great (laughs) pick something up turn it in you know I maybe never invoiced for it but I still could get it done but a book is a hell of a lot of essays all about the same topic and that's that's a lot so for me I actually have you know I have I realize like you know ADD does a lot of really great things for my ability to write it really really does but write a book is another story. And so like dealing with that, working with that, I have to negotiate. So I'm always trying to trick my brain. <laughs> like, like, okay, you know what? You're not plugging your computer in and you're going to work until the battery dies and then you're going to bed and you're not going to work again. Or you're going to set a timer for 20 minutes. You're going to work and then you're going to play a, a game and then you're going to work some more um, or you're going to handwrite. So I, I have to, I get so sick of typing and it becomes really difficult for me so all of my notes are handwritten. All of my research is handwritten. Wow. So wow. for all of my books, it's just, I, I was feeling notebook after notebook, but then I got this, not an ad, um, like remarkable tablet that you can handwrite. And so it's um, the best thing in the world. It's so like, here's notes from a talk I just gave. 
and you can create notebooks within it. So I have notebooks filled for each chapter and all of my, you know, meeting notes, everything that every talk I give, because it's the first book, Shame I Talk About Race, I went through like five bound notebooks, but then it was like, shit, I can't find anything now. Like, but it helps me, right? And so this at least helps me, um, you know, find that middle ground and, and I've used it ever since, but I do hand paint everything. It's just, it, it helps me when I'm like, I can't type another word. Um, I, yeah. I handwrite. I usually handwrite all of my research, all of my notes and all of my outlines. And then I That's only type when I'm doing drafts. I can't write longhand at all. Like, and if I do, I can't read it. Like my hand cramps up and it's just, um, I think that I just want that for doing the crossword. It's the best crossword with my thumbs. Um, I feel like the only thing that I have implemented just in, not necessarily for the book, but just over the last few years that would count as like a writing tip Mm -hmm. is that when I have an idea for a sentence while I'm brushing my teeth, which is always all of the ideas for sentences I have are either brushing teeth or walking the dog. Um, And the dog is very old, so he doesn't get as long walks anymore. Um, That I actually have to make myself like, write down so, like relatively rereadable notes about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just do it in like the notepad app on my phone, but, but there were just sort of too many times. Yeah. I would be like, Oh, I've totally sorted this out. And now I'm going to bed. Yeah. Yeah. It's the worst. Like, because no matter how confident you are, that you're going to remember what it was. still <laughs> not. It will not happen. So often that hits me. And so, yeah, please write down everything. And, and I always try to tell people too, if you're, if you're writing down something, it's often really helpful too to, re, to write down what you were doing when the idea came to you. Because a lot of times it's not just the idea, it's the inspiration that will yeah. fire back up. If you can remember like, oh, I was watching a commercial and this happened. It reminded me of this. I'm like, oh, you know, or I was thinking about this fight I had and, and it reminded me of this. Like if you write that down, oftentimes it's a lot easier because I, when I first started writing the notes, it would be so obscure and I'd be like, what the hell yeah. is this? That's not an idea. <laughs> you know? And then it was like, oh, if I write down like horrible commercial made me mad, but you know, and write this down and I'm like, oh yeah, that's what that is. Also why it's probably useful to learn like the key, the keyboard shortcut for reopening a closed tab. Yeah. Because if you lost the the thought, you might it might have just been because you closed the tab before, like consciously yes. reading, reading. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this has been um, so much fun. It's it been really fun to finally after all these years. And I just, you know, I want to reiterate. I really hope people buy your book. And I just, I'm so excited and and like happy that this is out here and. It's so fun to like be circling back. It feels like this really big full circle moment to be talking about your beautiful book, which by the way, the cover is just yeah. gorgeous. I amazing I'll, there's illustrations in there that are amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, see, you know, you don't get um creative covers when you're writing about race theory. For that, like, what sort of monsters do you want on the cover? I don't get to have um, I did like your, I did like your balloon cover though. That was thank you. That was that was uh, my partner and I were like in a cabin, mm. like, like what imagery? Because after the first book, we decided like, wait, you can just you can be really like you can be picky about that and have an opinion on yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I, I did notice someone pop up and ask if it's possible to buy the illustrations poster size. I um, I made sure that my that my illustrator um, retained the rights to basically using it anywhere except for in the book. Um, but she does have a society six page, and I think she's eventually going to put them up um, for like prints and stuff like that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna check on whether she's doing that. But her name is Samira Ingold. Um, and so if you if you look her up on like Twitter or Instagram, um, she has society six page. I think she'll put the monsters up eventually. She also has many other things that are very very beautiful. I love her. And where can people if you know a people buy this book? Buy it through Ellie. Ellie Bay, it's amazing. You're going to love it. And also, like, I, I really do want to be clear that Elliot Bay has been one of the most stalwart supporters of independent writers, smaller presses, writers of color, Seattle writers. Um, so you want to talk about race wouldn't have been what it was had it not been for, I would say, Elliot, Elliot Bay in third place or the two win. Because big book box stores were not buying this book and to go into Elliott Bay and have them be like, Oh no, we sold hundreds of copies before it even opened. It was like, what, what do you, what do you mean? And they're like, Oh yeah, we have a waiting list. It's huge. You know? Um, and it's because of the excitement they show constantly for books. And if you've spent any time with the staff there, you will see the overflowing excitement um, that they have for books. People that you imagine working at bookstores all of our lives really do work at Elliott Bay. Um, and it's, it's just a wonderful space. So please buy this book there. All right, Rick. Well, Idioma, I was, I almost came on then you said the, um, lovely words. Thank you so much for those words. Um, and, um, it, I just, I do want to say, you know, because you've been at the book part a little longer than Jess has, um, but it is, you know, with that, so you want to talk about race came it was it is it was and it still is something to put in people's hands and actually listening to you because i can physically possibly do it with you more easily than just i've got a stack of other things to show you when we whenever we do no i mean yeah um yeah i've got several writers i could that i think as much as you've got coming at you you'd like but both of you have been wonderful tonight um in everything you've talked about certainly everything that the things jess has brought up in this book that can't be held up enough and, and can't and should be read um, by everyone uh, tonight. But um, I think, uh, I think Ijeoma sold some, some devices too, uh, by the end of this. <laughs> that went from writing process to writing product. Um, uh, so, or something like that. It's like, uh, you maybe should get some, you know, some uh, points from those people for that. Um but uh, but oh no, it's just the two of you. It's been such you have your ease with each other. That's um, wonderful. That for all the drawbacks to doing these things, where um, we're all you know, the, I can imagine the energy if we we're in the same room and place, um, and and the side conversations of everyone afterwards, um, able to talk and come up to each of you and talk, and whoever goes out afterwards for something to eat or drink, and and then sort of wind down that way. Um, and if you were doing it just by visiting, you would, you know, then you'd have to figure out where you're going next. But there, it's all part of that <laughs> that journey, and which is exhausting in many ways, but it also, I think, can be energizing if, you know, if it's done at a certain pace. I think Idioma's um, probably been through both parts where it was kind of energizing, but also it can be a real, you know, it can get you going if a little much. But again, when there's energy, I think I think the audience that's been here tonight, which has been a little quiet in the question thing, but I think you've given them so everyone so much to think about and. And you two have been such, you know, it's like a great conversation. You hear 
um, at a table next to you in a restaurant and you um, and you stop your own conversation because you're listening. It's so good. And you're going away with it and going, wow. Um, so that there's that. And I think um, uh, so carry on and um, good luck with everything. Um, Jess, as this, this book goes on in the world. And we want to thank people too, because we originally scheduled this, I think last month and there were some scheduling snafus. And then it also, we were able to, um, I think we were able to approach Ijeoma and, and uh, Jess was able to, and, and so grateful that, that she's been part of it too. And um, I think that has tied a lot of things in it together. And um, so it's getting late where you are, um, Jess, and there's others uh, who are back in your time zone. So we should probably um, say a good night to you and, where Ijeoma is and, and we are, we get to step out in what's still a lovely night. And um, yeah. the sun is up, the moon is up and all of that. And uh, so, and, you know, do the outside thing and stay safe that way too. So thank you both. Thank you um, for Women and Other Monsters. And thank you for Mediocre um, and um, all the good work and good words. And thank you all again for those of you who've joined us. And um, we'll keep keep in touch and um, good work, good writing, good reading. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, Gemma. Bye. The Elliott Bay Book Company presented this conversation between Jess Zimmerman and Ijeoma Luo on April 16th. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org slash speakers. While you are there, you can subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.